seriously, there is not an unlimited amount of love in the world. It's rare. TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. TGIF indeed. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together we are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour and with a brand new guest today. This is going to be fun. Regardless of anything Carrie Bradshaw has to say, <laughs> plenty of love to be shared and we'll find out the hows and whys of all that momentarily. But first, we need to say hello to bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. Benny, how are you today, sir? Doing very well. It's like one giant hug because one size fits all. Oh, just for me to you. Oh, oh I love that. <laughs> I like that. What What does your T-shirt say? Oh, uh, it says Arena. make Seattle super again. Uh, you know, yeah. with the Sonics leaving a long, long time ago. We we're trying right. to still get them back. And so there was the big like, we need to build them a new stadium in order for them to get back. And oh. or arena, I should say. Well, they're in the I, works. They're I, remodeling the old key, which is really? now. Really? But I thought that was for the Kraken. Well, yeah, but this is leverage. Oh, that we might get them back from Oklahoma City. Oh, and bring them wow. in again, you know? The supersonic. The I don't city know. fathers and mothers in Seattle are always at work. Yeah, I don't know if it's going to be them particularly, but there's other teams that are other franchisees that could be moving or would like to move. Uh, See, okay, especially moving to Seattle because it's a wonderful place. Yes, that's right. Well, yes, it is. And mm -hmm. maybe they're not in such a wonderful place. Because they need love. <laughs> right. When that's you think all about I want to say about yeah. that. It was very philosophical. <laughs> right. Deep. That's uh, her view into the sporting world right. today. So deep. Well, this is great. <laughs> so glad to have you with us, Benny, as always. And today we are going to have one of our fabulous first guests. We love to have these first-time experiences with quality people we that do. we bring to our listenership. There's always a little nervousness, too. Butterflies, but yeah, you learn butterfly. how to use those creatively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Annabelle Bugatti is known as Dr. Bell. She was born and raised in Southern California has resided in Brooklyn, New York, and currently lives in Las Vegas, Nevada, where she has a successful private practice. She became passionate about helping people heal from divorce and find love again after going through the pain of divorce herself. She uses her own experiences of divorce and successful remarriage to help others heal and have the healthy and successful love relationships they want much to be said about her educational background, but let us welcome Dr. Bell to Manson Mitchell for the first time. So happy to have you with us today, Dr. Bell. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We're excited to have you. And Gary and I are saying, you know, what should we talk about first? And the answer was easy. How do you go from Southern California to Brooklyn, New York, to Las Vegas, Nevada. A rather circuitous path, as it were. Actually, it was Southern California to Las Vegas to Brooklyn back to Las Vegas. Uh, <laughs> and... I, I know what it means to be from Las Vegas and back in Las Vegas. I lived there five years myself oh. in the 80s. And uh, since uh, I pulled up stakes and moved to Seattle back in July of 1989, I understand that Las Vegas has changed somewhat. Oh, yeah, it's changed a lot. You almost wouldn't recognize it, I think, if you lived here back then. So in talking about this, Suzanne brought this up with a purpose in mind. We like to call these get-to-know-you interviews. We'll get into the, uh, the breadth of your work and the depth of it as well soon enough. But we would like to know, Dr. Bell, about your own journey, how you got to where you are today, not only physically, but in terms of your personal and professional development. Absolutely. So... I grew up in a small town in Southern California and a uh, very religious family and, you know, small town kind of church mentality. Everyone was marriage focused. And, you know, I, I grew up kind of having a lot of, can we say myths about marriage and love? And maybe they weren't so much myths as so much as they, the real aspects of marriage were presented in kind of these fantastical ways without any type of real tangible and practical information as to how you would get there. 
And so I felt like I wasn't really prepared for relationships. And yet, you know, I've always been, you know, I guess the word would be a serial monogamist. <laughs> and I, I love being in relationships and I, as most people do. And, um, you know, so I got married and I had a lot of, it was a, a, a big wake up call, a big uh, experience that uh, all these bright eyed, bushy tailed thoughts about love uh, kind of like somebody took a, a pin and popped my balloon. And I was like, oh, well, this isn't, um, this isn't what I thought. <laughs> And it was really hard to struggle with because, again, growing up in a religious household, we didn't believe in divorce. And so struggling with um, those beliefs and then recognizing that also the reason I got married wasn't also, I wasn't in a healthy place. And there were a lot of red flags that I ignored. But again, I had all these fantastical beliefs and thought, oh, love will make it okay. And yeah. Oh, what's high wrong? And I hear a lot of the younger generation talk about that too. And I'm like, no, <laughs> you know, and I'm all for love and love definitely helps, but I don't think people really have a good grasp of what healthy love is. And I don't think society does a good job at teaching it either. So, you know, I'm, I'm in college and still kind of like meandering. The problem is I'm I love too many things. I was interested in photography and journalism because I've always loved writing and I always loved psychology. And so I I just kind of floated around for a while, couldn't figure out what I wanted to do. And then um, moved to Vegas and just trying to make a fresh start because Southern California is really hard to uh, get on your feet in. And... Um, yeah, Vegas was booming at the time. This was back in like 2002. And uh, so I I went back to school at UNLV probably, I think in my late 20s, was I was like top of my class in high school and had high honors and, you know, just really bright kid. But, um, you know, I applied to a lot of schools and some of the paperwork just kind of fell into the cracks. And, you know, I didn't even know I was accepted into the honors program at one of the schools I had applied to until I called to register for a math placement exam. So it just didn't end up happening. So then, you know, as I said, I just kind of floated around for a while. And then I kind of woke up one day and was like, you know, I'm going to really regret if I wait till I'm 40 to get my degree. So um, I went back to school and I took some classes on psychotherapy and I fell in love with it mm. and then struggling with a marriage that wasn't working, going through lots of marriage counseling, learned a lot about myself, learned a lot about marriage, really played an impact, um, ended up moving to New York to... Um, so I actually have been married twice, big shocker, married twice before, uh, both times entered it before I was a therapist and wasn't in a healthy place myself. And then my second marriage moved to New York um, so that my ex-spouse could open a show off Broadway. He's a very amazing and gifted uh, musician and artist and really an amazing guy. And um, so I went to grad school. That's uh, what brought me to New York was so that I could finish grad school and uh, he could do his show off Broadway. New York was a huge culture shock and a rude awakening oh. and had a lot of traumatic things happen there with my ex's family. And uh, but I kept kept focusing on school and I really just used it to help myself grow and you know New York it's survival so you know failure or not surviving is not an option so and in New York is really blessed with a lot of opportunities for education you have a lot of um, institutes that offer different types of education for different models of counseling and so in my master's, I took a course taught by Dr. Sue Johnson, who pioneered emotionally focused therapy, who she also wrote Hold Me Tight, Seven Conversations for Making Love Last for Couples, amazing book, 
and it changed my life. It changed my career, it changed my practice. It helped me use my experience from, from divorce and love and relationship and how to really channel that. And I love, first of all, you are the only other human being still alive who uses the word fantastical like me. There, you understand the, the nuance there, fantastical, of fan, born of fantasy, insubstantial, as opposed to, oh, fantastic, which is something else altogether. <laughs> and there's one other thing I wanted to say, Dr. Bell, and it is this. My degree from Cal State Fullerton is in religious studies. I did mass media studies at UNLV when Jerry Tarkanian and the running rebels were so dominant and so famous. Loved being there at the time, learned a lot. What I've discovered in the process of my own personal growth journey, because you know everything today is a journey, what I discovered is that it's great to have a religion as long as you are not had by your religion. There's a big difference. Do not lose your personal sovereignty, your ability to think, and especially to think critically, because if you do, there is a very strong likelihood that you are going to be subjected to undue influence by people who do not have your welfare primarily in mind. Hello. I guess did we lose her altogether? Well, I'll tell you what, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, okay. So I have I, that was my big speech oh, on a I soapbox. There she is. I thought I'm gonna have to do a take two over here. And <laughs> the listeners don't, don't want to go through that hell again. Yeah. There, so uh, that sounds fine. Uh, I'll tell you what, let's go ahead and take our break there, and we're gonna get zoomed back into the twilight zone where we belong or back in from it, maybe I should say. And we'll leave that to the tender ministrations of one Benny Mathers who can handle this while we're listening to Sue. We're just moving the economy forward, let's face it. So we'll come back here in a couple of minutes and it'll be take two for this wonderful interview with Dr. Bell. Thanks so much for listening. We are Manson Mitchell and we'll be right back. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 a.m. or streaming live from your computer anywhere. The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Tom and Levi. Tom is the smartest man I know. He's been a professor at two major universities, been a teacher for over 40 years. One day, he told me that he was having um, problems in his classes. I think one of the students had asked the question and he didn't remember the answer. And I also noticed that he was letting his class out earlier than they were supposed to let out. And he was telling them that he was doing it as a favor to them. But I think in reality, he just wanted to get out of there. Um, I was really starting to worry because I saw something was wrong. Levi and I talked about how it would change our lives. But he was there beside me. And my love for him was just immense. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash stories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We're a couple of baby boomers who bring you a talk radio mix of metaphysics and music, politics, and pop culture. And you never know which celebrity will join us for an interesting conversation. Mance and Mitchell is Boomer HQ, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on 1150 AM KKNW. Your home for alternative talk in Seattle and Western Washington. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. 
Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. Talk radio with a purpose. Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest, Dr. Bell from Las Vegas. And I think we have solved our little technical difficulties. And brought back in with Cinnamon Girl because we're looking at her on screen here. Oh, that's true. We, we got that ginger thing there. going on. That's yep. wonderful. Great choice, by the way. I was really impressed with that one. Oh, oh thank you. Like you. Yeah. Gary always picks and the bomb. Benny's Mr. <laughs> DJ, long accomplished <laughs> DJ. So thank you. High praise indeed. All right. Before the break. Yeah, essentially what I was saying is it's great to have a religion, just don't be had by your religion. This idea of marching in lockstep and and not challenging theological certitudes. Where's your individuality? At what point does religion become, to use a term that Dr. Bell has used a couple of times already in this broadcast, and that is fantastical. If you're Mm -hmm. being sold a bill of fantastical goods, how do you know what's true, Dr. Bell? How do you know, and how do you know that you're thinking is in alignment with your principle or necessarily even constituting good thinking. Mm-hmm. Well, this is, you know, where mental health and religion come together. And a lot of people aren't emotionally healthy. And in counseling, we call it the God block. And look, I believe in God. You know, I'm born and raised in the church. I still attend church myself and I have very strong spiritual beliefs. But, you know, a religion that really is encouraging spiritual growth and relationship with God is not going to suppress your individual thinking. In fact, they're going to encourage it and they're going to want you to ask questions and want you to try to explore the truth in your own heart. And that's, that's how you know when what you believe is real. It's, it's something you have a conviction in your bones. It's conviction is the deepest form of knowing, but unhealthy people who gain leadership positions of authority over others can use religion as a way to control others. And then unfortunately it misrepresents who God is. And then people get a bad taste in their mouth about who God must be when that's not who God is. It's unhealthy people, toxic people twisting their own spin on God and religion for their own means. And that really sucks. So Absolutely. Yeah. I turn our wonderful witness over to you, Suzanne. Well, thank you very much, sir. <laughs> um, we were introduced to Dr. Bell by one of the great uh, publicists of all time, Harlan uh, Bull. Harlan Bull, who has brought us many a good guest. And from the information that he sent us, we our topic should be talking about uh, her book using relentless empathy in the therapeutic relationship. We have several questions with regard to uh, empathy. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I noticed in the notes, it says the capacity to place oneself in another's position. So uh, Gary and I were talking about, you know, what's the difference between sympathy and empathy? Now that's a, that's a pretty easy softball question, but then we have harder ones after that. So why, what is the difference between, you know, how do you, what is putting yourself in someone else's position? How can you do that? Well, that is kind of complex. First off, empathy is an emotional ability. It's not a mental capacity to relate to somebody else. Um, As you kind of read from the notes, I wrote in my book about empathy and you know, empathy is the ability to channel an emotional muscle memory of what it's like to be in a similar emotional felt experience as another human being. It is the deepest form of understanding you can offer someone else. And, you know, it's not enough to just relate to someone in your head. You know, sympathy is a little more, can can come off as kind of placating to people. It's like, I get you mentally and i get that that sucks for you but i can't really relate to you on a personal level and if you don't if you're somebody who avoids emotions or suppresses emotions then you're going to be hard pressed to authentically have empathy and empathy is a pro relationship building skill it's not just a feeling or an emotion it's actually a skill that can be honed for the benefit of relationships. And a lot of people get confused around being an empath versus having empathy. 
and it really kind of gets under my skin sometimes when people talk about, oh, I'm such an empath, I'm just an empath, and they think because they're using that word that that means they have empathy for other people, and they're not actually have empathy. They're not necessarily having empathy for other people. They're just feeling what others around them are feeling, but that doesn't mean that they're relating to that experience and then bringing back that empathy as a way to join with the other person in emotional understanding for the benefit of the relationship to help them cope or to help them address their issues. It's more like, oh, you know, I can relate. And then they're kind of absorbing those emotions and being weighed down by it. And then it becomes about them. And empathy is never about you. It's about the other person. But you have to be able to to channel it in yourself, almost like you're a resonating chamber. Or I, I think in my book, I talk about kind of like refraction, like a prism. Light comes to you and goes through you and bounces back towards them. And that's really what empathy is, is you're allowing that emotional muscle memory, that emotion to come through you resonate through that muscle memory and then go back out towards the other person as a way to offer that, as I said, deepest form of understanding that can build relationships and shape interactions that might otherwise be excruciating, challenging, or intolerable. When we were talking about um, your being on the show and, and putting it on our website, we were saying that, you know, that empathy may be a key in going forward to reconnecting with people and it this couldn't be at a at a more appropriate time to do that you mentioned suppressing emotions and this is a very general uh idea but it seems like we learned especially if you're a little bit older uh, the uh, baby boomer generation, you learned how to suppress a lot of emotion. It was actually taught in the culture mm -hmm. that, you know, you need to be polite. And, you know, if fat lady's walking down the street, you don't point and say, look how fat she is. I mean, mm -hmm. we are taught these cultural things mm -hmm. about suppressing what we're thinking, what we're feeling. And it seems like now people are letting it all hang out. If, if they're angry and you're in the grocery store parking lot, you're going to hear about it. There's a lot of road rage. There's a lot of people who are doing the opposite of suppressing their emotions. They're letting their emotions have free reign. Mm -hmm. So when I think about empathy, it, I'm contrasting that with what appeared to be a lot of emotional suppression decades ago and just about no emotional suppression today. Mm -hmm. And so how do you navigate those extremes to get to a place where we can um, move our society forward in a healthy way? Because I don't think it's any healthier to say exactly what you're feeling and thinking any more than it was to not say what you were thinking and feeling. You mean hashtag no filter? <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, you're saying so many good things. And first, let me speak to the baby boomer thing because I actually, I, I'm pretty positive I actually talked about that in my book. And I wrote my book a little while ago now. So sometimes I forget exactly like how much I wrote in it and what, I was always thinking about doing a part two to my book because there's just always so much to share. But with the baby boomer generation, you're absolutely right. They were talking, they were taught emotional suppression because they came from a different time in our culture and our society where everyday life was more about survival and people chose relationships the same way they chose and stayed in jobs was for economic survival. That's not to say that there wasn't any romantic quality or any chemistry that never entered into the picture, but people weren't taught how to have secure attachment. And attachment science really didn't de start developing even till the 60s um, and really didn't take off till the 80s and more in the early 2000s. So, you know, we really didn't know a whole lot back then, but when every day is more about survival and just putting food on the table, you know, just like relationships that weren't happy, you know, when people were in jobs with bosses they hated or that were unfulfilling, they never thought to question it. They never thought happiness was not an element for life. It's just about food and reproducing 
And, you know, which seems like such a unfulfilling way to live when you think about it. And then you had all these people kind of have these crises later on recognizing, hey, that's not such a fun way to live. But they didn't have the luxury of enlightenment because life was so much harder. And so they would stay in relationships and jobs and it didn't matter if they were unhappy. It was like, well, we just need the paycheck. Well, I can't afford to get a divorce. And back then, you know, it was looked down upon for a woman to be single with children and for her to have a career. So there were a lot of challenges back then, but now we're a much more liberated society and we're not in survival mode. Everyday life is has become a lot easier. And so our culture is a lot more enlightened in a lot of ways. So we have a lot life is easier. We have a lot more luxuries than that generation had, but you have baby boomers who were taught how not to do emotion, raising children who now are rebelling and saying, well, I have emotion, but they have parents who don't know how to teach them how to do emotion. So now they're saying, well, I'm just going to feel my emotion, but nobody's teaching them how to do this. So then it's kind of dysregulating all over the place. And look, emotion itself is not irrational. It is in your body's limbic system. It is part of your nervous system, the fight or flight responses. It's basically your body's kind of tuning fork, your barometer. It lets you know it. Emotion is just, um, is just information signals that tells you when everything is okay in the world, when you're happy and fulfilled, or when you're sad or in pain. And these are necessary and vital information signals for our survival. And they literally live in our body's survival system. And um, so when your survival, so attachment is in your survival system as well. And your body is your body's threat detection system. So when you even just detect that somebody might be rejecting you, your body's awakening its survival system. And fight or flight behavior is your body's physical manifestation of the fight or flight system. And so it's not actually the emotion that doesn't make sense. Sometimes the behavior that goes along with it is not healthy. It can be downright hurtful or destructive. The emotion underneath is logical. There's a logic to it. It's just when people are not taught how to deal with their emotions, how to lean in, get the signals, make friends with that space so that they can get clear and communicate it in an effective way. Then they're just kind of acting out just like a small child. This isn't just a child thing. This is an all human thing. When we don't know how to communicate properly, we're going to find some other way. You know, emotion comes from the Latin word to move, more specifically to move out. Pain demands to be felt. And if you don't deal with it, it will deal with you. It will come out in ways either through your body because all that gets suppressed and stays in your body and goes, starts, you have a chemical reaction to this. When you feel anger or stress, you have adrenaline, you have cortisol, right? And if you're not able to expel those in a healthy way, and we found with connection, with healthy, secure attachment, your body can actually release oxytocin, vasopressin, which help your body counteract the stress hormones and re-regulate itself. But if you're not getting that secure attachment, then, you know, you're trapping that stuff in your body and then it goes after your organs. You get IBS, you start getting cancer, stomach issues, all kinds of stuff. And so those that can kind of lean in and, and make friends with those spaces, they're able to communicate their pain effectively outwardly in a way that allows others to meet them in that place. But the less you know that space, then either you're pushing it down or, you know, that's more the flight mode. Fight mode is more just kind of letting it out everywhere. But again, if you haven't made friends with it, then you you don't have control out of how you choose to deal with it. So either way, those are two extremes is to shut it down or just let it run everywhere. And like that, like vomiting fire on people. And I always say, you know, if you don't know how to make friends with your anger and learn how to communicate what it's trying to get out, then all you're going to do is spew fire on other people. And then it turns and becomes about the fire and you're having to do damage control. And then the original pain that you are experiencing never gets help because now it's all about the damage caused by the way you behaved 
when you were angry. Oh, I like that. Vomiting fire on people. More about Godzilla in a moment. (laughs) But I did did want and I love that. There's a metaphor. Stop vomiting your fire on me, man. (laughs) I'm trying to make friends with this space. And that's what I wanted to ask you about, Dr. Bell. The idea, and I think I see where you're going with that, to make friends with the space is an accomplishment in itself. And I'll tell you why I think that. Suzanne and I have had a few guests on here in particular who like to remind everyone that we are born with an innate tendency, thanks to evolution, by which we see things in negative terms until we are comfortable with who we are, who we're around, and our surroundings. Because, you know, in terms of evolution, it wasn't that long ago that we were in our caves, making a fire, tending the family, cooking our food, which we only obtained by venturing outside the cave where the saber-toothed tiger was licking his chops. And so there's an element of fear. And if it's your waking life, it's your dream life, where you have these things happening, you've got to work your way through fight or flight. There is a sense in which you have to establish enough security to be able to even take the time and devote the energy to understanding who you are in relation to others. Do I have that that right? That is actually the hallmark of attachment science. And you're absolutely right. Emotions are given to us. They are, they're actually neurologically and physiologically hardwired into us for the benefit of our survival. And attachment relationships, bonding, this isn't just this, again, this luxury that, oh, it'd be nice if we had relationships. No, actually, attachment is part of your survival system. It is one of your hardwired needs. It are, The survival of our species is predicated on our ability to bond and connect. If we weren't able to bond and connect, our species would not survive. So just like you need sleep and you need to eat and you need physical safety, you also need connection. And so, you know, your relationship with other people, your primary caregivers, these are like your blueprints because these are the first relationships you have with any other human being in the world. So it is the blueprint for which you develop your perspective of other people in the world and your place in it. It all develops out of this. If you have positive experiences, and caregivers who respond to you and they're consistently available, you're more likely to develop a secure sense of self that I'm worth responding to. I can trust other people to be there when I need them. Whereas if you have parents who are intermittently there, like sometimes there and sometimes not, then your body starts developing insecure attachment because it doesn't know how to wrap its mind around. When is my caregiver here? When are they gone? I can't predict it in our mind doesn't know what to do with the unpredictable. That's not how we feel safe. So again, you may develop one of two ways is either we completely shut down and it's better to not need it. If I can't trust that I'm going to have it, then it's just better to not need it. So then I don't hurt when it's not there or you kind of anxiously hoard it. It's like, well, I never know when I'm going to get it again or when it's going away. So I got to hoard it because I, I know that I want it and I don't know when it's going away or if you have neglect or abuse, especially if that neglect or abuse happened at the hands of a caregiver, then you're more likely to develop again, a negative view of self. And so you won't trust yourself and your ability in the world. You'll have less security to venture out and explore. It's, you know, independence and dependence are two sides of the same coin and they're a reciprocal healthy relationship. But in society we teach we put it under the label independence, but it's actually avoidance what they teach. And so we don't teach people how to reach and rely on each other in a healthy way. And that's actually how we're built. But, you know, so when you have people in your life, your first attachment relationships teach you that you can't rely on them, you start to go inside and wonder, what is it about me that other people won't respond to me? And then you start distrusting others. That's why these that's why these are so important. And, you know, again, like you said, from an evolutionary perspective, survival was always hardwired into us and fear is so important. And that's something that gets aroused inside of us when we 
believe that our attachment bonds are in jeopardy. All we have to do is even perceive it in our brain already goes into, actually, let me relate it this way. As you mentioned, the saber-toothed tiger, you know, our brain, when it has a lot of traumatic experiences, doesn't know how to distinguish between a kitten and the saber-toothed tiger, right? If they've not had secure attachment. So losing those connections, your brain can detect that just as dangerously as if there's a saber-toothed tiger out there. Even if the person that you love isn't actually going away from the relationship, maybe they're angry and they're just going away to diffuse and avoid confrontation from getting worse, you know, but if you're somebody who's had really um, inconsistent caregiving and learned not to trust, your fear is that, oh, this person goes away, they're going to leave me forever because that's what's been taught to me by my caregiver. So then your brain goes into encoding that as dangerous, like, oh, there's a saber-toothed tiger. And then guess what? Fight or flight comes on, and that's where you start reacting. And, and not everyone has the same system. Some people go into flight mode, and that's where you see a lot more of the avoidance and the suppression. Fight mode is when, you know, people move towards they will pursue, they'll push, blow up your phone, those kinds of things. And again, when we haven't learned secure attachment, we're less likely to be able to regulate our emotions in an effective and healthy manner. So that's exactly you know, what you're saying. Back in, um, back in college, um, um, in the Stone Age, when I went to school, I, I took a, a child psychology class once. And one of the things that kind of stuck in my mind was um, a, something that, that I had um, learned back then, which was at a certain age, and I almost want to say two, but it could be anywhere around that toddler age, that there is a, a healthy way of perceiving a child, and that is that a, a healthy child will um, you know, run and hug its mother, and then it will go away and play and it will come back and hug its mother. And then it will go away and play some more. And what they were saying in the class was you can tell when something is going in the wrong direction, if the child never leaves the mother or if the child never comes toward the mother, that they're playing all the time and they're never with the mother. And they said there is a, a, a way to perceive a healthy child as being somebody who gets connected and disconnected, connected mm -hmm. and disconnected. And I see that in the adult world mm -hmm. where if, you know, you think that being in a relationship is being attached and with that other person 24 hours a day and you can never let them out of your sight, that's one way of being and the other way of being is if you think you're in a relationship but you never see them you know yeah. you know maybe you have a breakfast or dinner or something but you have two exceedingly busy lives that are very very separate and independent and and then to me that also says that could be better you know, if, if you never see somebody. So I think about that two-year-old and when that two-year-old yeah. grows up, do they have that capacity to be connected and still let that other person have a life which is not connected to you? Does that Gosh, make sense? You're saying so many good things and I want to make sure that I catch them all. So the study that <laughs> okay. you're talking about is the strained situation and attachment is just as much about bonding and closeness as it is with loss. And when the caregiver goes away and the child's by itself, that is a loss. And then it's the reunion piece. And yes, attachment is cradle to grave. You know, in the early stages of attachment science, people had this belief that attachment was just for babies, just for children. And evolutionary speaking, you know, the emotional signals were much more simple, obviously, because we didn't have words, we didn't have, you know, our brains aren't that developed when we're infants. So the only signals we have are through cries and a parent can always tell the difference between a hungry cry, I'm in pain cry. You know, these are all ways of being able to distinguish those emotional signals. Now, as we grow up, we still have the same 
strategies in our system. Whereas when, you know, we lose a caregiver, it still elicits that alarm and that panic inside of ourselves, but the way we communicate it and express it is different as adults. Um, you said something else that was so important. I really want to make sure I catch it, but oh gosh, I almost can't even remember because you said so many, so many good things. Um, Thank oh, you. <laughs> one, of, one of the big, yeah, one of the big things too is that when people don't know attachment, they're tempted to just look at the child and see, oh well, you're not warming up to your caregiver. What's wrong with that child? Whereas when you understand the child, you understand that this is a system a feedback loop between the child and its caregiver. So when you're looking at the child, maybe don't ask what's wrong with the child, maybe what's right with the child, because what the child is doing is a manifestation of what's happening in that attachment relationship. So you're, it's kind of, I, and I don't know if I mentioned this before, but knowing attachment science is understanding what's at the roots of humanity. So when you see behavior is like looking at the leaves of a tree, and when you understand what's at the roots, every time you see behavior, it's like looking at leaves and then you know exactly what's growing at the roots. So when you see this, you know, you're looking at the roots in the behavior with the child and then you got to get curious like, oh, I wonder what's at the roots of that because there is a reason why the child has developed the way that they have. I like this idea of the caregiver. That term has been around for a long time. The caregiver, there's, there's a certain expectation on the part of the one receiving the care that this human being tending to me knows what he or she is doing. But what happens when things go awry, things get short-circuited, emotionally speaking, for the caregiver? It's, it's almost like the counselor needs a counselor. You know, there's, yes. there's this sense of, of mutual support going on and all of those techniques. I've always found it fascinating, Dr. Bell, that people who have this high capacity for helping others get lost themselves. That is part of the human drama. Yes. Well, and you know, you're exactly right. There's not a lot of focus on what happens to the caregiver. And, you know, there are a lot, and especially when we didn't know so much about parenting and you had Dr. Spock and Tough Love and, you know, one of my favorite movies is Meet the Fuckers and you got Robert De Niro who's like, we use the Ferber method and then you have... Uh, Dustin Hoffman, who's like, we use the Fokker method. <laughs> we love and hug and kiss that little prince, you know. And so you you have kind of this old school way. And, you know, I think people are just now really starting to catch on to attachment parenting. But back then, a lot of parents didn't know the impact of consistent. And, and look, I get sometimes it's hard to drop what you're doing to responding to your baby. I get that it's hard and you've got stuff to do. But we never really realized until we've done all this research, the impact of that, that the, that the caregiver response actually plays a vital role in the development of a child and whether or not they trust other people to be there when they need them. The less they trust people, the more extreme their strategies are going to have to develop to get what they need when they believe it's not available. And, you know, so there needs to be a lot of care for the caregiver as well. And that's also something I'm very passionate about when it comes to therapists as well, because there's a lot of support for clients, for patients, for customers, you know, across all spectrums of relationships. Cause again, we're never not in relationship with other human beings. It's just those types of relationships change. If I'm in a business, the relationship might be customer and cashier or CEO and manager or manager and subordinate, or, you know, it's best friend or brother, sister or romantic relationship. So, um, I think that idea about, um, relief, um, putting into putting into high relief this idea of the caregivers yeah. the the way that that i've seen that actually get presented in the last year is the appreciation going out mm -hmm. to the doctors and nurses who have been working mm -hmm. on the covid patients yeah because they've been caregivers uh, in some ways that have been silently <clears throat> in the background and starting last year they had you know, the people of New York who would come out at seven o'clock every night and applaud 
the, the people who were going to work, they would show their appreciation, um, you know, really strongly. And, um, and so I think the idea of people caring for other people has actually been in conversation much more in the last year than it was before then. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's really, I always, and I have a lot of clients who are in leadership positions and I always say there's a lot of, there's a lot of resources for the sheep, but not a whole lot for the shepherds. And being a shepherd of a flock, being a leader, being a caregiver can be a very lonely experience. And so we really do need to support and, you know, again, help healthy leaders as well. And, and that's what you do. That's what your book is about. Isn't your book like for people who are in your industry caring for other people primarily? Absolutely. It is for other therapists, but, you know, if you're a like substance abuse counselor, if you're a pastor, you know, a lay counselor, I've had doctors and nurses, because we all have people in our life that are difficult. And again, I, part of what inspired me to write this book was listening to therapist chatter on Facebook. And I, I think a lot of the political climate has actually, I, I don't think I know a lot of the political climate has gotten into our profession. And I've just felt really discouraged about the way that I feel like the attitudes of some of our maybe newer practicing professionals have started to develop in a way that we use terms that used to be diagnostic terms to help us effectively treat a patient now have become terms of judgment and labels. And, you know, and this isn't everybody, but I was just discouraged by the amount of it. And, you know, look, we can't like everybody that comes to our office and we can't like every person we meet on the street, but we don't, and we don't always have the luxury of canceling relationships and nor is canceling relationships necessarily healthy. If we don't learn how to stay in relationship with people, especially those who are challenging and difficult, how will they ever get the help that they need? How will they ever change? And so, and I get it's extremely difficult when somebody believes in something or says something that feels so hurtful or destructive or challenges the very core of what you believe. And empathy is not about um, approving of somebody's toxic, abusive behavior. It's not about putting up with that at all. And that's not what empathy is. Empathy is about being able to relate to somebody's humanity so that you can get to the heart of where they are and be able to relate with them on that level so that they are more open to expressing themselves. Their nervous system will be a lot calmer and then they will become more open to conversation about the kinds of things that need to happen. And it's a great skill to hone because, like I said, there's not all relationships you can get out of. You know, if you have a coworker who seems difficult or you have a boss or an employee or a neighbor next door or, you know, an aunt or an uncle. I mean, I just heard so much from my clients, from my colleagues about even their own family members, their own households are divided among political spectrums and such. And empathy is the breeding ground for tolerance if you cannot have empathy then you cannot have tolerance and tolerance means i'm able to hold space for your view and my view and not see you as this totally horrible person right maybe i disagree maybe i you know i don't believe the same as you maybe your way isn't even necessarily the most effective way but that's not the point of it right it's about being able to have connection with somebody who believes and feels differently than you. And the last chapter in my book is actually dedicated to this, is really walking your talk, applying the principles that I talked about earlier in my book to help shape your own relationships. Because as a caregiver, it's so much easier just to tell other people, hey, you know, this is the way you should be in your relationships and how you should talk and interact. But then when it's you, it can be so much harder. And I remember, you know, at the height of all of this, I would have mentors who were just blasting some stuff on Facebook. And I thought, oh, my gosh. And I really wanted to work with this person. And I really looked up to them. And now they're saying these things on Facebook that seem so hurtful and judgmental. And I don't know how I'm going to be able to work with this person again. So I used the skills to be able to go underneath, again, the leaves to the roots 
to try to understand what was in their hearts. And when I was able to understand what they were really after and what they were looking for, then I realized on the same level, we actually wanted the same thing. And we both emotionally had the same type of care and heart for helping people, even though we really disagreed on what that should look like outwardly. But then I was able to actually have a tremendous connection and more respect for this mentor, which I would have never had had I just stopped short at what they were blasting on Facebook, judged them, and then checked out. That's a great, great strategy for living to hang in and demonstrate your empathy. First of all, to yourself, wow, I can do this. I haven't melted into a puddle here. I'm actually engaging with this person, and you end up with mutual respect. And as this world goes, that's pretty doggone good. We're running out of time here, Dr. Bell. However, we wanted to give you the opportunity to tell people about your book, about uh, your website, and how they can get in contact with you. Um, so you can find my book, Using Relentless Empathy in the Therapeutic Relationship on Amazon. You can type in the search bar, Using Relentless Empathy should be the second book to come up. I actually had my IT guy read it. And I wanted to find out if someone who knew absolutely nothing about therapy could read it, not be totally bored out of their mind, understand what I said and get something out of it. And he said he loved it and he got a lot out of it. So um, you can get it on Amazon, my website, drbell.com, D-R-B-E-L-L-E.com. Hey, you can look me up in Vegas, come for, you know, I do intensives with couples and and, you know, I have to be honest with you guys, I was super vulnerable with everyone on air. I've not had a whole lot of uh, radio interviews where they wanted to know about me. And um, <laughs> so I appreciate you guys indulging and in, in learning a little bit of my uh, journey before I became a therapist and how I grew. And now I'm using my pain and my lessons to help others kind of reclaim their love lives and know that, you know, even though you might have experienced broken relationships, that doesn't have to be a permanent destination. And you can go on, learn, grow, heal, and have healthy relationships and remarry and have them be successful. And so I just want to encourage all of you listeners out there, don't give up hope. Absolutely. Well said. You know, and, Gary and catch me out on my web, on my uh, YouTube channel, We Heart Therapy. And it's also a podcast wherever podcasts are found. We Heart Therapy. Well, I'm glad to know that that uh, you know, we took care of you today on air. And, you know, Gary and I always have to make a decision at some point as to whether or not we want to talk to somebody a second time. And I think we do. We definitely We didn't get did. to all of our questions for today. And we're honored that you you opened so. up to us we just uh, we should have forewarned you that when a guest comes on manson mitchell they enter the realm of the real <laughs> <laughs> well and i'm all about being real and i'm so honored to be uh, on your show thank you so much and to your to your listeners yes. and i i would love to be back if you'll have me thank you so much we will definitely will have you back and we have a lot more questions so thank you for being with us today dr bell you're Wonderful. welcome thank you all right, next up is the Christine Upchurch Show, and later today is Trip Talk, American Road Trip Talk with host Gary Mance. We're gonna to talk to a master of the two-lane highway and all the things he has seen and done. Fascinating stuff. Thanks for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow, 10 a.m. Pacific, right here on AM 1150. Until then, let this be the start of your great weekend.